it's the most politically incorrect doctrine in the Bible. But what about the raging, murderous violence this week? The suicide bombers in Baghdad, or thousands being slaughtered in Dafar? It's time to turn to Romans 3 with our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, and to listen. Listen carefully to what God says does go on deep inside the human heart. When I started out getting ready for this message, the big story in the news was the eye man. And so I'm going to talk to you about that, that there is the poison of a viper in our tongue. And then the news hit us from Virginia Tech. If you're from A&M, Virginia Tech is the A&M of Virginia. And probably some of you noticed that, that the school spirit and the, you know, the commitment, the, the commitment to the military and all that is part of Virginia Tech's heritage. And our hearts were just, just totally, we're back in that time where we're so challenged. Why does this happen? As you look at the victims of Cho's slayings, I mean, we had prayer here on Thursday night and I was able to run off from uh, the Time cover story, the pictures of each one of those kids and then an older, like a fellow in his 70s that's, you know, a Holocaust survivor. And here he throws himself against the door and allows his students to get out the window. And he sacrifices himself. Incredible irony in that story. And we found ourselves going around the circle as we prayed, just weeping. How many of you have found yourself weeping over the loss? Did you hear the news? And then Mary suddenly comes up to me and says, hey, it's a late-breaking story, but down at the Johnson Space Center down there in Houston, another person has been gunned down. And you had his victim trying to talk him out of it. And Mary also assured me that they had the interview with the widow of this dear person that was shot down that tried to, to keep the person from committing suicide. And Mary shared with me that she had an incredible peace. And she shared how she knew Jesus. How many of you heard that? So this week has been one of those weeks where we're just hit in the face with don't use your tongue to destroy. How many of you have heard discussion about what's the cause of all this? Anybody heard any commentary on what causes murder? Anybody heard that? Well, immediately Dr. Phil jumped in and it's our culture of violence. How many of you have ever heard that? It's our culture of violence that produces that. And sure, that has an effect. Of Rosie O'Donnell on The View, man, immediately she said, it's because of the guns, and we need to have gun laws. And boy, in our church family, we could have a knockout drag out back and forth about that. And Virginia's joined in that, okay? And so she said, it's the gun's fault. Uh, it struck me that Time magazine that's going to come out this week, and on the internet you can look at it, they quoted President Bush, which they're not very much in favor of, but they quoted from President Bush's speech at Virginia Tech as he did what a president needs to do. He went right down to that campus and with thousands of students listening, he said something like this, but the urgent search for Manning ran into a real raw sense of senselessness. Time observed, the real quest for meaning, now listen to this, ran into a real sense of senselessness. That's one of the first really true things. One of the things you need to understand about murder and about using our tongue to destroy others and to demean others and to curse and to steal, all the things that we do that break God's commands, they ultimately are crazy. They don't make sense. 
It's one of the fundamental realities of sin. It doesn't make sense. And then the president went on. It says, George Bush said plainly of the students to Paris, they were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And then time described the students jamming their fists into their eyes. And they shuddered. What struck me, though, is that time didn't shudder very long. Because in the very next article, they had an expert, uh, John Kluger, reported on some of the latest inside information on a mass murderer's mind. And if you're in police work, I want to encourage you. I'm not against you learning to, in this sense, do a good kind of profiling and analyzing different mass murders. And one of the first things that Kluger observed is, contrary to what we think, this is a very uncommon form of murder. This hardly ever happens. And that's something we can rejoice in, right? But what struck me is that really comforts me when I'm a mom or dad that has a child that I have to pick a coffin at for because they have multiple gunshot wounds. The fact that it only happens very seldom doesn't comfort me very much. Then he went on to give the, the, the profile that is often part of this kind of a person. It talks about mass murders are almost always male. They're almost always a loner. They're often with a history of abuse drug use and isolation, and Cho certainly fits a whole bunch of that profile. What struck me is that, we, is that the, the debate goes back and forth about what's wrong. What's wrong that these terrible, murderous things... How many of you have asked that question this week? What in the world is wrong? And the basic issue that our society, and I want you to listen for this on the news, the basic issue that our society raises, how in the world... Can such good people and human beings that make up such a good society that are fundamentally basically good. Remember what I taught you last time we were together about B.B. King? He says, I believe as he plays the blues that you all are really basically good. And so the big question this week is how in the world does such good people do such heinous evil things? Now, when my son Jonathan went to UT and was in Plan 2 and had an introduction to Western culture, one of the very first things they did is they told him that they needed to read the Bible. Was that a good thing? Yeah, that was a good thing. But then they went on and said, one of the things that we want you to really get a hold of is that one of the most devastating, horrible ideas in American history is the doctrine of total depravity. Have you ever heard of that doctrine? Not too many of you. Or how many of you ever heard of total depravity? How many of you ever heard of the goodness of man? Everybody that's ever heard, any teacher, any professor, any student, how many of you ever heard that you're really a great person, that you're basically good inside? Anybody ever heard that? Okay, that's the opposite. Now, total depravity is this doctrine. It's that deep at the core of the human heart We are not fundamentally good. It doesn't mean that every one of you are as bad as you could be. It's not what it means. Because God in his grace is restraining sin. But what it means is that if we are left to ourselves, if you are left to yourself, if God allows you just to follow your own instincts and your own desires, you will end up, you will end up turning away from him. And that's because your fundamental nature doesn't turn towards him, it turns away from him. 
In fact, as I read the Time article, there was no mention of a great big three-letter word. What do you think that three-letter word was? Sin. No mention of sin. In fact, this is what Kluger said. It's amazing. It just got me. He focused our attention on this question. This is what he says. What is it that makes an individual members of a usually empathetic species? Listen to this. What makes a member of a usually empathetic species turn rogue? How does one of our most primal faculties, the ability to understand the things that cause me pain or fear, would do the same to you that I therefore ought not to do to them? Get so completely shut down. It's a little bit hard to follow his reasoning, but what he's saying that one of our primal instincts as part of the animal species called the human race is that I should realize that, that if, if you gun me down, it would hurt me. And therefore, I shouldn't do that to someone else. But I want you to ask you, as Kluger makes that statement, what is he concluding that you are? Now, everybody tell me. What are you? You're a what? What is a species? And by, where do you learn about species? Animals. Now, everyone needs to think really clearly. You live in a society where a dominant idea is that you're animals. And I want to share something. In Scripture, you are like animals. So if you're in biology class, you have a lot of similarities in your physical bodies to animals. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew uses the word that animals have nephesh. They have the gift of life. They have physical functions that flow from that. And you have nephesh. But the Bible in Genesis 1 says something far more than that. It says that you're not just an animal, but you are a man. You're a woman. You're a human being, and you're distinctive. You are made in the image of God. And this is a great morning for you to think really hard with me of what's the source. You see, out there in your society, a dominant idea is that you're an animal. Is that true? You need to ask yourself. You need to listen. Do I really believe that that's true? And if that is true, what Kruger never raises in this discussion, he never raises the issue, if we're just animals, then why all the fuss? Do you ever stop and think about that? He never raises the issue, if if 31 people are gunned down, Willie, my little West Highland Terrier that you've learned is the terror of our home, A little rabbit runs across the backyard and he races on and he grabs that rabbit and in five seconds the rabbit's dead. And then he grabs that rabbit. He doesn't eat it or anything. He just grabs that rabbit. You're all going to say, let's get rid of Willie. But Willie grabs that rabbit and he holds it high with his little, he's only this big. He holds it as high as he can, and he shakes it, and he runs all over the yard. And when I try to get it from him, he'll bite the snot out of even me if I'm not careful. But you know what? Even Mary didn't say, let's take him to Bob Carroll, because the judge needs to deal with him. Why not? Those of you that think that nature has the answer, I challenge you, and as you're witnessing the people, challenge them to think about what real nature's like. Because I want to share with you, in real nature, 31 victims that are weak, that are defenseless, get totally torn apart 
constantly, every day. But when you do it, it's radically different. Why? Kruger never dealt with the reality of why is it that thousands of students gathered and why did students all over the United States gather and have vigils and pray? Have you noticed that everybody starts to pray? Why do you do that? Across the United States, he never dealt with if we're just a species and if this rogue went wild. In the animal kingdom, rogues are just, when they get a little bit weak, then you take them out. But nobody prays in the animal kingdom. Nobody cries in the animal kingdom. You might think your dog is really upset when something bad happens. I got news for you. Watch out for their instincts. They'll bite you at the drop of a hat. But you don't. Every single one of you this week, you never heard of those people before. Most of you have no connection with them. And yet, how many of you have cried this week because of that situation? A whole bunch of you. How many of you have prayed this week? Those are objective realities. And it's time for us, what we want to do this morning is look at Romans chapter 3. And I think it's time to raise that big, ugly word and, and to let God You see, it doesn't make any difference about the debate about what Imus does with his tongue. And I also, I'm really thankful that Imus asked the girls at Rutgers to forgive them because if my daughter, Janae, was playing for the Rutgers basketball team, Rutgers basketball team, I would be really ticked. But you know what? Maybe there was discussion, but nobody said anything about this vertical dimension. And I'm really thankful for people saying, you know, we're sorry for what happened. But maybe we need to all be silent. And what I'd like to do this morning is I want you to be silent. And I want you just to ask yourself, what does the God of the universe think about what's happening? And that's what Romans 3 is going to talk to us about. And it talks to us about some really tough things. It starts out like this. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? And what value is there in circumcision? Now, based on what I've taught you so far in our study, what would you conclude? What's the advantage of being a Jew? Your answer would be, from chapter 2, what do you think the answer would be? Tell me. Is there any advantage in being Jewish? Is there any advantage in being circumcised? Based upon what you've learned in chapter 2, how would you answer that question? No. Because in chapter 2, this is real important. You've got to follow with Paul. In Paul's discussion so far, the Jew says, well, I'm a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That gives me an advantage before God, and God will let me in. And the apostle Paul says, no, he won't. I'm a Jew. And when it comes to standing right before God, the fact that you are a Jew, the fact that you have God's law is not going to get you right with God. So I would expect when Paul says, okay, what advantage the Jews have? I would expect him to answer, no. In fact, later on in this passage, in verse 9, Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And the idea, it's the same idea, the same word that he introduced the chapter with. Is there any advantage? And this time he says, not at all. So one thing we need to wrestle with in this passage is how in the world can Paul say there's no advantage of being a Jew, and yet look how he answers in the beginning of this chapter. Then is there advantage in being a Jew or what value is circumcision? And he says in verse 2, much in every way. 
Now, I could conclude, let's throw the Bible out. There's a contradiction. You need to learn to listen really carefully because the very first thing that the Apostle Paul really wants to get across in this passage is really powerful, is that the Jewish people have given you a priceless gift. Now, when the young people go, go away to college, to UT, you're going to be taught. There's the Quran, There's the Book of Mormon. There is the Bhagavad of, of Hindu, which is not one book, but many, many books. There's Buddhist books, and on and on it can go. And your Bible is just one of the many religious books. How many of you have ever heard that? And some of you are going to sleep with the wrong person. You're going to get drunk and become an alcoholic, and, and you're going to become a liar. You're going to run away from the things of God because you see you're going to say this book that I was taught in my upbringing from my mom and dad and from Lothian Bible Church is not any different from any other book. And I want you to listen really carefully. The reason you will make that decision is not because of intellectually that the Bible doesn't prove itself. It's going to be because you want to sin. And I want you to think really hard about that premise. There's the Jews. There's the Islamic people with their Quran. There's the Christian with their Bible. And the popular idea is it's all on the same level. I challenge you, it's not. And I would challenge you to read the Quran. Just think Judaism. What's Paul, what the Apostle Paul is saying? You're talking to a Jewish person. And they say to you, well, I have my Tanakh, which is the word they'll use. That just means their Old Testament because they don't want you to call it the Old Testament because that implies there's a... And they don't think there is a. So one of the things you need to do is don't get all uptight. Say, well, let's start on where we agree. Because I just presented a big general idea. There's the scripture of the Jews. There's the scripture of the Christians and the scripture of Islamic people. And then the scripture of Hindu people and Buddhist people. And on and on it goes, of Mormon people. And it's all on the same level. What did the Apostle Paul say? He says, no, in every way, the advantage that the Jew has, as notice what it says, much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Genesis through Malachi, in your lap, is what Paul's assuming. When Paul said those words, the New Testament wasn't completed yet. He was writing part of the New Testament when he said that. So when he says the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God, what does it refer to? Genesis, and in the way the order is in the Hebrew Bible, just so you'll be correct, it goes from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. And you'll pass some of the exams to Dallas in your introductory courses because you'll have to know that. But I want you to know that it's exactly the same books. So when you talk to a Jewish friend or you're interacting with a Jewish friend, you want to begin with, you know what, as a Jewish person, I really love you. Because you have a great advantage. You were chosen by the living God of the universe to give us the very word of God. Genesis through 2 Chronicles in your Tanakh. Amen? That's really important. What the Bible's claim is, this is what Paul is claiming. Paul is claiming, like if you're in science, the big thing of science is Carl Sagan was listening to radio voices from outer space before he died trying to find out whether there was intelligent life on other planets. And so the basic idea is that we're not even going to be able to hear about intelligent life that might be way out there until we discover radio telescopes. What kind of an ultimate intelligence would let 
precious people that he created be totally silent, not even know that he's there for thousands of years until they got smart enough to build radio telescopes. That raises a big ethical question for me. Doesn't it you? And yet you'll read science fiction novels, get all excited about the God that, that must be there because he gave you pi, 3.14, blah, 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 and Sam will complete the rest of it for you. That's what Carl Sagan's stories are about. I'm telling you a different story. It says that from the beginning of the creation of human beings, Adam and Eve, God talked to them. When they sinned, God threw them out of the garden, but God still walked in the garden. Cain murdered his brother Abel, and God still talked with Cain, even provided so that Cain wouldn't be killed. In the story of the Jewish people where God founded the Jewish race through Father Abraham, Abraham actually ate meals with Yahweh. He actually could talk with Yahweh, and Yahweh talked to him about the promise of his son Isaac. It says in Genesis about the story of Joseph that the Lord was with him. One of the things you need to really think clearly about is the Jewish people in living history have been entrusted with the very word of God. You say, Dave, how do I know it's true? Because the documents about Jesus, for me personally, the documents that reveal Jesus tell me that Jesus totally agreed with the Jews about the fact that the Tanakh, the Old Testament, was the very words of God. I would challenge you to read them. In fact, as we go to the book of Romans, Paul is going to develop his whole doctrine, his whole teaching about how you can get right with God from the Old Testament itself. So when you're talking to a Jew, don't fight with them about their scripture. Just say, I'm thankful for your scripture. And I want all, especially the young people to understand that it's the Jewish scriptures that lay the background for what Paul's saying in the book of Romans. And remember, Jewish people accept the Old Testament. New Testament, Christians accept the Old Testament, and even the Islamic people hold that it's been distorted, but they do hold that it was one of the original documents. So begin there, and I've talked to imams. An imam in Albania came to hear me teach the Old Testament because he wanted to learn more about the previous revelation. You've got a lot of common ground, but what you need to do is you need to learn that revelation and understand the preciousness of it. So Paul says, Jews, you have a great advantage. God gave you his written word, and that's a precious gift. Then he goes on and says this, what if some did not have faith? Because the big issue I would raise, and okay, if the Jews had the advantage that they had the word of God, then why didn't they believe it? And most of all, why didn't they accept that Jesus was the promised Messiah? And Paul says, what if some did not have faith? They didn't respond to God's revelation by depending upon it. They didn't believe in God's promises. And then Paul raises this issue. What? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true. And this is really important. This morning, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm true or not or whether Kruger for Time Magazine is true, or whether Imus or the girls at Rutgers are true. Who decides what's true? Everybody tell me. Everybody tell me again. And you need to decide, do I really believe that? Because if God is really there, what he's saying is, he's the one I need to listen to. Because he's the one that decides what's right and what's wrong. 
what's true. You say, David, that important? Yeah, it is. The Supreme Court this week voted that if you girls have a baby and you want to abort it, and if you take it a little bit out of the womb, stick in a needle and suck out its brains and then deliver the rest of it, that it's, you can't do that anymore. And Ruth Ginsburg, one of your Supreme Court judgments, Justice and mine, argued that that's the most heinous evil law. I can't believe that they held that, 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 that it's not right to do that anymore. Because you girls deserve the right to be able to do with your body whatever you want. And that includes you ladies should have the right. And I have devoted my whole life, Ruth Ginsburg will say, I've devoted my entire life to giving you the protection that you can do that kind of an abortion if you want. Five male judges took that right away from you. Now that's a Supreme Court that are supposed to be the ones that tell us what's Right and what's wrong? So what are you going to decide? What is right? Five male judges. You're going to go, ladies, you'll go to university. And somebody a lot smarter than me, that can speak a lot better than me, is going to tell you, man, your real truth, your real value, what's really important is for you to be able to take anything that's in your body. You can take out those little babies. You can have sex and not have any consequences. And if you do have a baby, just go ahead and take its life because it's not a baby, it's a fetus. And Ginsburg will tell you that's salvation. And those five male judges are the oppressors. They're the evil person. Do you see how everything is a moral story? And I want to ask you, how do you know who's right? Ginsburg is smart. Clarence Thomas is right. Alito is smart. Who do you think is right? And how do you know? And I want to tell you, that I want to listen, what it's saying here is that God is the one. Everyone else might prove to be a liar. In fact, the Bible doesn't say everyone else is a liar. But my God is the truth. You say, Dave, what does God say about that? God says, be fruitful and multiply. What does the creator, what does our living God say about those little ones being shaped in your womb? It says, I shape them. And that includes my little granddaughter, Blythe, with a genetic screw-up, where the amino acids aren't just right. And my living God doesn't want, if we found that out, for little Blythe not to be born. You got it? I'm not speaking from a vacuum. There's going to be elite intellectuals who are going to tell you, you can snuff out all the future Blythes. You can snuff out all the Down syndrome's babies. Do you have Down syndrome friends? They're some of the most precious kids and adults I've ever met. Do you want them killed? Do you realize that there's hardly any of them around anymore? You see why it's important when God says, I begin to shape them from the moment of conception. And John the Baptist could leap in the womb of his mother Elizabeth when she saw the Virgin Mary carrying Jesus. They're little people that can even declare the wonders of God's gift. But your scientific species viewpoint says they're just its. 
And I need to listen. Because the human discussion is not going to give the answer. I need to ask, what does the Creator really say? What does God really say? He says, not at all. He says, does our lack of faithfulness, does the Jewish lack of faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true. Let what God judges about things is the idea, and everyone else a liar, as it's written, King David. And this gives you a little inkling that's really important. Psalm 51, and I want to show you something that David does. For those of you that like a puzzle, Paul quotes from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm that King David wrote when he broke, when Nathan pointed his finger in David's face and said, David, you're the man that stole a poor man's sheep. You're the rich man that slaughtered a poor man's sheep. And you are the man. And David broke and realized he'd been lying, he'd been murdering, he had committed the horrible sin of adultery, and he broke and this is what he says in verse 4 of that psalm. He says, he said, God, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. This is something that's real important. You know how you can tell when you're really facing the truth about what's inside of you? When there is no but. When you've been out past your curfew teenager and your parents made it really clear that it was a real strong curfew, and you walk in the door and you say, I'm sorry I was late. You're not repentant. And that's what all of us do. This week, you're going to hear all kinds of buts. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to drive to, this is a major point of Romans 3, saying no more buts. And it's easy for the parents. All the parents are saying, preach it, Wurtson. <laughs> but as a mom and dad, when you're inconsistent with your kids and you don't live consistently with what the Scripture teaches, do you say, but? And so that all needs to stop. As long as you're explaining, when you come to me for counseling and you say, I know I shouldn't leave my husband but I know I shouldn't leave my wife, husband, but. In fact, a whole lot of you, your whole life is focused on justifying yourself. In fact, one of the things Mary and I just pray hour after hour for the tragedy of people that justify themselves, asking the Lord to help people to stop, including ourselves, to stop justifying ourselves. You all are experts on seeing a little splinter, just like Jesus said, in the eye of your partner, in the eye of your kids, in the eye of your fellow associates, and you got a plank, and so do I, coming out of our head. And we go around with a big plank out of our head saying, there's nothing wrong with my sight. I'm fine. I, gotta, I know there's a big board coming out of my eyes. And Jesus told that story because it was kind of funny, but it's powerfully true. The Apostle Paul says so that, you, that with David, you, God, are right when you speak. David is showing real repentance. And then he says, but if our unrighteousness, and this raises a, a big issue, it's a parenthesis that we're going to come back later in Romans 6 and Romans 9. He says, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, 
Some of you smart ones are going to say, well, man, if everything I do ultimately brings God's glory, it ultimately fulfills his righteousness, then I'm going to sin because that'll make God get even more glory. That God is unjust in bringing wrath on us. How in the world can God judge us? Paul says I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood brings about God's righteousness and God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned to the sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, what Paul is saying is this. The argument goes like this, okay? God sets up the standard. Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 2 that all have sinned. He's going to go on and tell us that, that like King David, when King David sinned with Bathsheba, let me make it really concrete so you understand what he's saying. What Paul is saying is King David lied, committed adultery, murdered her husband, but when God forgave him, the message of God's gift of forgiveness went all over the world, and millions have come to know God's righteousness presented in the cross based upon what David did. So doesn't that mean that what David did was a good thing, and therefore God should not have condemned him? In the Gospel of Judas, that's a big hit. Suddenly, all these ancient documents are big hits. The Gospel of Judas says Judas wasn't a bad guy because he's the one that, that knew that the Messiah needed to go to the cross, and so Judas is a good guy because he betrayed the Son, which made your salvation possible. That reasoning you're going to hear a lot. And Paul's argument is, God forbid. Because what you're actually saying is, it's God's fault not mine. And I'm just part of a big story. And one thing you need to get really clear from the book of Romans is the book of Romans is saying it's your fault and it's my fault. And God is writing a big story. And we're going to come back to this in Romans 6 and also Romans 9 through 11. But you can't blame God for what you do. And that's what every one of us want to do. It's God's fault. Now, in the next section that we'll have to get to next week, and I don't want to just lickety-split through it. The next section from the Old Testament, Paul lines up that in your heart, without God pulling you, number one, in your heart, you don't turn towards God. It talks about what you do with your mouth. It talks about what you do with your feet. And it says our feet run to shed violence. It talks about our minds, it talks about different parts of our body, and then it closes with a very powerful point that you need to be looking for in verse, uh, at the very end of verse 20. It says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So this is what I want you to be thinking about this coming week. If you go for an MRI, how many of you have ever had an MRI? This is what I want you to be thinking about all week long. If you go for an MRI, what does the MRI do? The MRI diagnoses your problem. If you have a malignancy, you get in this machine. How many of you have ever done that? Mary, you know, gets in that machine, and they, you know, they, they actually developed the technology when I was in chemistry way back in the 70s. And it, it's about sound technology and clunking bricks together. And I remember studying about it, saying, man, this is really a weird thing. It's like sky fiction, and now we all just take it for granted. 
when you get into that machine and then you get the report, the doctor comes in and lays out for you what? A diagnosis, right? Some of you have gotten that, okay? That is what Paul says is the purpose of the law. Now, this is what the Jews of Paul's day did with the law, which was God's MRI. And I want you to think about this. The, the law pr- indicates that how many people have a spiritual malignancy. According to the law, and if you look at the verses, his cases, how many of you have a spiritual terminal illness? Everyone tell me. Are you basically good people? And if we'll just leave you alone, everything will be fine? No, you're all spiritually, and I'm included, we're dead. Now, this is what we do. There's a whole bunch of it that says, well, I'm going to go into the the MRI machine again, and I'm going to work harder. I'm going to make the MRI give an even more accurate test. How many of you think you'll be cured of cancer in an MRI machine? I got news for you. If you got cancer, an MRI machine isn't going to help you. You need radiation. You need light. If, if it's in an organ that can be taken out, we need to take out the organ. And this is what I want you to be thinking about. Paul's point in the book of Romans is not that the Jewish law was the wrong revelation. He's saying, no, it's a good revelation. It tells the truth about us. But the Jews of the first century, the majority of them, were starting to use it for a wrong purpose. And Orthodox Judaism today tries to use the law, the fact that I'm circumcised, the fact that I go to synagogue, the fact that I try to internalize the Torah, and I've seen Jews praying and studying in their yeshivas, thousands of them, studying the book, memorizing it. Herman Wouk, the great Jewish-American novelist, reads the Tanakh and the Torah, and he also reads the Talmud every single day. Why does he do that? Because it's going to make him right with God. And what Paul is saying is it's only an MRI, Dr. Wook. It can only tell you how sick you are. The tragedy is, is that the real message of the Old Testament doesn't just give you an MRI. It tells you about King David. It tells you about a man who could never be forgiven based upon the Ten Commandments. And yet he's forgiven. And today, as I close, I want you to ask, why? So what's really important is we go out this week, you're going to go out and a lot of people are going to ask, you know, why murder? And rather than just saying, well, the animal species went a little bit haywire, you can say, you know, what I've really been thinking about is there's been times in my life where I yelled out inside of me, maybe not outside, but I yelled out, boy, I could kill you. And so you say to your friend, you know, that really scares me about the evil that's inside of me. And it's not just because something's wrong with my frontal lobe. It's not just something wrong, although there really is mental illness, but there's something deeper because I've got a real anger inside of me. And say, what do you think? Have you ever been that angry? What are you going to do about it? And then listen. As you're in an imus debate, it's going to be real easy for you to say, well, I've never said anything like this. How many of you have ever said a racial slur? Raise your hand. I was in Israel teaching the Beatitudes on the mountain where Jesus gave the Beatitudes, probably. And in the middle of my talk, I said, 
I talked about Jewing somebody down. And our guide was an Israeli, and she was definitely Jewish. How many of you have ever used the expression, Jewing somebody down? How many of you have ever felt resentment in your heart because Jews are really good business people and you feel that they get an unfair advantage? The poison of vipers is in our tongues. I had to stop my preaching from the Beatitudes right in the middle of it and say, I'm really sorry and I want you to forgive me. I just generalized I said a really cursing, evil thing about your people. And that was wrong. And I want you to forgive me. Will you do that? That's what this morning is about. What Paul is trying to help us to realize is that we need to realize that we all sit under God's MRI. We all have spiritual malignancy. malignancy, And the Lord doesn't want us to debate about, well, your malignancy is more deadly than mine, and I'm going to live a few more years longer than you because your malignancy is in your pancreas and mine is in my lung. That's what we do. The apostle Paul is saying, hey, stop debating about the merit structure of malignancy. There's a great physician who has a totally different way that you can get right before God and that you can be cured. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Paul's going to turn from the bad news and lead to the good news. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to pray that you would use the book of Romans. And Lord, on a Sunday morning, I can just touch the surface in many ways about what you're talking about. And Lord, this is one, this section of Romans is one of the most difficult sections in the entire book. And In a lot of our culture, in fact, it's really in me that it's hard for me to wrestle with complicated things, and I want to make everything simple. And this, the logic and the flow of thought in this section of Scripture is not simple. But, Lord, I thank you that it's true. And I would ask you, Lord, that we would really listen with every strength we have and total dependence upon you to what you're saying. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to go out this week with a real accurate diagnosis about where Imus came from and where we come from and the way that we say racial slurs to one another and against one another. And help us to realize that it's not an artificial line that our culture sets up, but we need to look for the line that you set up. I pray, Lord, that you would raise many opportunities to help friends and fellow students and teachers and business associates. A lot of my brothers and sisters here are talking to me about opportunities they have to share with a friend based upon what they've learned in the book of Romans. And I'd ask you, Lord, that your truth, the fact that total depravity is not a terrible doctrine, you're not body slamming the human race. You are simply being a great, good physician that is telling the truth about what's really going on inside of us and where murder really comes from and where lying really comes from and where all these evil things, most of all, our tendency to just turn away from you. And by your grace, I want to pray, Lord, that that everyone here in this auditorium would listen 
to you pulling them to yourself. They would listen to your voice, that their hearts would be prepared for the wondrous, incredible good news that Paul's going to tell us, that the law will never get us there, but Jesus' death on Calvary and his resurrection can get us there every time. I pray, Lord, that this incredible good news that's often forgotten in our culture would begin to grab our hearts, would grab uh, our attention so strongly that we would want to share it with everyone. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.